This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Hey, and welcome, everybody. Now, today I'm back with part two of my interview with Blake Cawthron, the author of the new book, The Berry Grower, Small-Scale Organic Fruit Production in the 21st Century. Now, just in case you missed the first part of this episode, Blake Cawthron is an organic farmer, educator, professional horticulturalist, and small business owner in Stanford, Kentucky. He's been a grower for over 25 years and has been operating an organic plant nursery business for almost 10 years now. His specialties are small fruit production, orchard care, nursery production, and temperate fruit growing. Now there's a lot to his backstory, but since he explained everything in part one of this interview, just be sure to go back and listen to it if you haven't already. Now building on the topics that we covered in the beginning, Blake starts by explaining all that you need to know about sourcing plants and propagation material and navigating the complicated world of plant nurseries and online plant vendors. And it turns out that there's a whole lot more to it than most people are aware of. We also break down the practical assessments of planning a profitable berry business and how to design and plan your cultivated space to ensure that you don't have difficulties and inconveniences that cause you to lose money down the line. Now, as a bonus to this series on small fruit and berry growing, I'm also giving away two copies of Blake's new book, thanks to the very generous people at New Society Publishers. All of this is for members to the Regenerative Skills Discord server. So if you're not already a member, you can join there for free on the homepage of the website at regenerativeskills.com or through the link in our link tree on the Instagram bio. Now, once you're in, all you've got to do is send me a direct message and let me know that you'd like to be entered to win a copy of the book. And I'll be announcing the winners one week after the second part of this series comes out. So now I'll hand things over once again to Blake Cawthron. So with with all of those considerations that we've gone through already, I feel like we've jumped some of the steps that I know people are going to be interested in. So let's take a couple of steps back and take a look at this from a, a planning perspective and where to source your plants from. So this is clearly something that is close to your heart because you also run a nursery to supply these things for growers and are very passionate about the quality and the raising methods of the the plant material that you supply. Let's talk about sourcing plants and navigating nurseries. Yeah, so sourcing plant material in the 21st century is um, very interesting because you have more options than probably ever before. You know, you can get plants from um, places like Amazon or eBay. You can get plants and plant material from uh, dozens of online nurseries. You might have some local options. You might have some plants growing in your friend's backyard. So you've got a lot of different options out there. And this is an important topic that I talk about in the book also. Um, Very, very important. And so you have to consider this. If you're doing this, if you're wanting to to grow and produce plants and and produce fruit commercially or, or at a professional or semi-professional level, then you got to be wise about it and you got to be professional about it. Um, I can't think of a, of a worse place to try to source plant material than eBay or Amazon uh, because there's there's no um, there's there's no accountability uh with the people you're buying from there's no credentials you don't even get their name 
you don't even know anything about them. And there's a lot of fake material. You know, you can go on 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 eBay and these other sites, and you can find um, seeds for rainbow colored tomatoes or blue strawberries. Folks, these things don't really even exist. This is just someone selling something totally fake. I don't even know why they let these people have these <laughs> listings up. This stuff's fake. And so you, you should never get plants or plant material from there unless it's someone selling on there that you're very, very confident in and have very good reason to be confident in. Um, online nurseries are all over the board. Some are total crap. Some are very, very high quality. Um, you're going to generally pay more for plants that way because you, you have to pay for shipping. You have to um, pay for the, you know, everything involved with that. And that can increase your, your cost a little bit. So you also have to consider um, bare root versus potted. So a lot of people think that they want a potted plant because they think it's going to be easier. They may have heard some bad things about bare root plants or, or had someone that had a bad experience or they read something online. And I can tell you for a fact that most farmers out there, I would go as far to say 95 plus percent when they're planting fruit plants, they're planting bare root plants and they're doing it for, for very important reasons. Okay. First of all, um, let's just, let's just look at the different, let's look at those two options for a moment. So you've got potted plants. Okay. What are they potted in? Potting soil, which is basically peat moss and perlite and chemicals. Um, Cool. That sounds like a great way to get it started, right? No. So uh, bare root plants are generally field grown. So they're grown in natural soil, in the earth, in a field. Um, they're, they're dug up by tractors and, and machinery. All the soil is shaken off and washed off when the plants are dormant and leafless and they're stored for a short time and then they're shipped to the, the final customer. So they're gonna have a natural root system. It's going to be generally big and robust, depending on the, the health of the soil, how well they're grown. They're going to have a nice, big, healthy root system. All the transplanting and stuff that's done is done when they're dormant, so they suffer very little setback or damage from that. When you're growing plants in, in pots, the plant is so constricted by the pot that it barely has room to grow. Most people are feeding it chemicals in the, in the peat moss. Um, and the, you're getting just a subpar stressed out plant, generally speaking. There's a few exceptions out there. Um, for instance, something like figs, which are a product that we grow in our nursery and we ship and we grow in, in potting soil in pots and ship out. Figs are so extremely fast growing. As soon as you put them in the ground, they explode with so much growth that it doesn't really matter if they're bare root or potted. So figs are an exception. You know, pawpaws are another exception. They don't handle field growing and digging up by machinery well. Their roots are very delicate. So pawpaws are another exception. Blueberries, you know, can do well container grown. And most, most blueberry farmers out there are going to be buying potted blueberry plants when they put out. So there are a few exceptions. But generally, when you're talking most fruit trees, most berry plants, bare root is definitely the way to go. It's a more sustainable option. It doesn't involve plastic pots. It doesn't involve potting soil. It doesn't involve um, near as much irrigation. It doesn't involve um, it doesn't involve the high shipping cost and fuel usage that shipping big, heavy potted plants does. You know, a, a bare root apple tree weighs you know maybe a couple pounds at most. A potted apple tree is going to weigh 15, 20 pounds. 
um, much bigger packaging involved. So it's just lower resource. It's much more sustainable. Um, we do both at our nursery, by the way. And so bare root is really the way to go um, for most things. Um, another thing you got to consider too is that potting, buying plants that are potted, they can also contain disease organisms, weed seeds, weed plants. I've had very bad situations with that before where I bought something and it was, you know, it had weeds in it I didn't know about. And now I've got a weed issue I've got to deal with um, introduced onto the farm. So that's never good. So that those are major considerations to think about. Um, but I always advocate bare root. Now it has to be high quality bare root. It can't just be ripped out of the ground, left in the sun for hours, dried up, stored too long, shipped inappropriately, and you get a weakened damaged specimen that then you plant out it doesn't grow properly and then your conclusion is bare root is no good and so that's what i've seen happen before um you know i bought i bought bare root plants from online nurseries before someone gave me a, a gift certificate one time for some some you know random very very large scale nursery so i got a couple things from them and they ended up coming in the mail and they were literally in a transparent plastic bag stapled shut with no moist material no packing material no no you know anything to hold moisture around the roots there was no gel there was no paper there was nothing it was just in a bag and the plants were totally dried up i barely got one of them to survive it was really ridiculous same thing with digging plants out of a backyard um you know you, you might have a friend that has some great berry patch and you want to dig plants out to start your your berry operation well that's a really really bad idea because plants also carry viruses and diseases and pests you know there could be um, insect eggs you don't know about there could be a virus you don't know about and so again you have to be professional and you want to source high quality material preferably things that are virus free or vi virus um, uh, certified that they have been um, They've been grown in a way that they are produced from plants that don't have viruses, virus indexed. Um, and so you, you have to find a reputable nursery. Um, you may have some great local options. If you do, that's great. You know, you should probably go with them. Sometimes you might be looking for a special variety or special species that you can't find locally. That's the case with a lot of people I've seen. And so the, the, the first option you think about is an online nursery. Fair enough. Um, but you need to check reviews and, uh, you need to really carefully check reviews and make sure you're not reading fake reviews too. And so if that business has low reviews and a lot of really serious complaints, that should be a big red flag. If they have very poor reviews, you should just forget it altogether. Um, and, and also read the reviews and see what people are saying. Are, are these, are these customers that are being just really, um, uh, unrealistic with their expectations or do they have real concerns that you should be concerned about? So read reviews, um, you know, check around, get some opinions before you make a large purchase. And you also want to read over the um, nursery's terms and just say, what are their terms? Do they have refunds? What if there's a problem with the shipment? When do they ship? Is it the right time for your area? You know, if you're, sometimes we have customers that order things from us in Maine uh, and we're in Kentucky and they're concerned that, that we're going to ship it before May, you know, because that's when it thaws out up there and they, and all the snow melts. So 
you just have to be, you know, realistic about reading the terms, uh, understanding the nursery. If there are no terms, then you probably shouldn't buy from that nursery. And they're probably a shady business if they don't even have terms posted that you can read about uh, returns, refunds, when they ship. Um, you know, if it's going to be a really large purchase, I would just send them an email or give them a call and just say, hey, I'm about to purchase $1,000 in plants. Uh, can you ship them to me in March? Can you ship them to me in April? You know, whenever you need them, can you ship them to me in February? And just kind of work with them on that um, and make sure that the way that they ship is going to be able to get to your place. Um, so there's just some really practical considerations. Um, but you just want to be really careful with, with how you source the plants, who you're getting them from. Uh, make sure it's a, a, a reputable nursery that has good terms, can ship what you want. And another thing to, to, to really consider is you might be looking for something that's so unusual or rare that practically nobody really has it. Let's say you're looking for some heirloom grape or something or, or heirloom raspberry and just no nurseries really have it. Um, you don't want to just then settle for whatever the nursery has. Um, this is especially important when you have like a, a specific uh, list of cultivars that you need for your region. And so some people uh, might choose to go with an organic nursery just because they're organic and not be basing it off of getting their specific cultivars. Like let's say a non-organic nursery has a specific cultivars you're looking for and organic nursery has totally different ones. You don't want to just be like, oh, well, I want to go with the organic nursery because they're organic. Now we're an organic nursery, but I'm just saying that when you're choosing cultivars, you want to make sure that you're getting the ones that you want, whether they're organic or they're non-organic. You want to make sure to get the ones that that are going to serve you best on your land and not just settle for something because you're having trouble finding it or um, or you're wanting the organic option or or let's say a local option. You want to make sure to get the right cultivars because in the long run, it's not going to matter if that plant you started with was organic or you got it locally. What's going to matter is that you got the right cultivar that's going to uh, perform best on your site in your region. Um, and, and also to note is that there's virtually no GMO small fruits uh, available. So that's something you don't really have to worry about. I get asked that a lot, you know, are, are all your fruits non-GMO? There are no GMO uh, small fruits or tree fruits that you can buy at nurseries. There's very few that even exist. There's like a few apples. Um, there's like a pineapple, a papaya, a handful of other things out there, but you're not going to be able to buy those from any nursery. These are, these are only available to farmers if they're even available at all. And so getting some sort of GMO raspberries or GMO strawberries or GMO grapes or something is really at this point in time is not even really existent or a concern. So that's something you don't really have to worry about. So if you're thinking, oh, if I get plants from a conventional nursery, I might get GMO plants. No, you won't. And especially not if you check the cultivars and know what you're talking about, because, um, you know, if there happen to be a GMO variety of some certain fruit, then just don't buy that GMO variety. Um, and you, you have to, and this involves doing your homework to see what varieties work for you and which ones you're interested in and understanding why and then where you can source them from. Yeah, that's all really solid advice. And I'm sure that adds a lot of complication to a lot of people's plans who are thinking about perhaps just getting things in time for planting season and just wanging them in. But 
doing your homework in this regard is really important because it's it's not a super regulated industry so far. Um, I don't know why that is. It seems to be the case here in Europe as well. There are some fantastic nurseries and very long histories of propagation of heritage cultivars around, at least in this area of Europe. I'm not, I'm not sure about all of them. So there are great options to be had, but like you said, it is worth doing your homework. It's worth considering those things and, and getting from a reputable grower because there's a lot of unscrupulous activity out there as well. Now, let's say you've got your cultivars already. You've gone through your homework. You're pretty confident with what you've got to plant. What are some of the key considerations and ground preparations that you want to uh, have in mind in your planning when you're ready to put them in the ground? Yeah, one other thing I want to mention quickly about the um, the the homework. So the 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 homework, so to speak, can can seem a little daunting, but it's really not that complicated. Like, let's say you decide you want to grow strawberries for instance okay well first first step does anybody grow strawberries in your area yes or no if the answer is no there's probably a really good reason why and you should find out what that reason is um, if the answer is yes okay then that means strawberries probably grow well in your area then you have to uh then you have to um, figure out which cultivars grow well in your area this is as simple as calling up the local you picks and uh and other local farmers and saying hey what varieties of strawberries do you grow you know or you may want to stop in their farm and and uh pose as a customer or be a customer and just say hey what varieties of strawberries are these you grow which ones do you like you know i want to put some in my backyard you know what what would you recommend um that's a great place to start also the ag extension office contact them hey what what uh you know what what strawberries do you recommend for texas or delaware or or your country or whatever, your area, find out what that is. Um, then from there, do a little more research into those varieties, see if they're appropriate for organic agriculture, which I'm expecting most of the listeners here, that's the way they're wanting to go. Um, because some, some conventional varieties may not do that well under organic production. So you want to figure that out. And then you just have to find a nursery that you can source from. And that's, you know, not that complicated either. Like we're talking all this work involved you could do within a few days. Um, it's really not that complicated, but you never want to just Google search what strawberries grow best in Kentucky or what strawberries grow best in Texas or California or wherever you're at, um, because it just varies too much. And you have no idea who's writing these articles, what their credentials are. Um, that's not the place to start. So that's the basic homework. Not that complicated. And it's just a step-by-step -step process. All right, well, let's go back then to planting considerations. What do you want to know and do ahead of time for the success of the plants that you're about to put in the ground? Yeah, um, so we touched on this a little bit earlier when we were talking about soil prep and everything. So basically, um, you just need to select a site that is practical and realistic for growing fruit. So that means there's a few basic things that are pretty much non-negotiable. That means it's very, very sunny. Um, you need to have at least seven or eight hours of strong, direct, unimpeded sun. You know, direct sun means the sun is baking the ground, baking the, the area. Um, there's not big trees. There's not structures. There's not mountains or hills that are blocking the sun. So you need minimum seven or eight hours of really strong sun. Better to have full day sun or almost full day sun, like 10, 12, 14 hours of sun. Best. Um, second, um, 
you have to have well draining soil. So the soil can't be marshy and wet. You know, the first site that we bought, uh, which we're no longer on, by the way, but the first site that we bought in Kentucky, about half the site is somewhat marshy. And um, I didn't know that going into it. This is the first time I ever bought a piece of land and uh, I didn't have much money at the time. So I didn't have many options. And I chose a site that was um, not especially well suited. Um, about half of it wasn't well suited. The other upper portion actually worked quite well, but um, a major portion of the land was just totally unsuitable to growing practically anything except plants that can handle really, really wet conditions. Um, so that was uh, not good. So you wanna make sure that the soil, you wanna make sure that the soil is well draining. And what that means is um, after heavy rains, the soil drains and doesn't sit there wet and marshy and puddled. You shouldn't see any um, marsh or wetland type plants present, such as cattails, rushes, reeds, um, different types of algae growth and things that can grow on the ground in wet areas. You shouldn't see anything like that at all. Um, and you wanna have a site that has a low water table. That means that when you dig down in the soil, you don't start hitting water six inches down or a foot down. Like this place was so wet that um, the water table was like six inches underground. And so, um, you know, it was a mountainous site. So the area that was good was actually, you know, well above that, but the lower area was, was marshy and wet. And so um, you want to check that out too. And that's, that's where you can also, contact these different government offices and get their input on the site. Um, you can also do what uh, Stefan um, Subkoyak recommends, and that's just get a, a post hole digger, and, you know, which is a special type of shovel, and just dig a big hole. And, uh, you know, he advocates five feet before you hit water um, for growing orchard crops. You know, that's that's pretty deep. Not, er not all areas are going to have that, especially here in Kentucky. But even if you just have a few feet before you hit water, that can work just fine for berry crops. You know, they don't make super, super deep roots usually. Um, but really the deeper, the better um, to a point. And so you want to check that out. You know, you could also contact if there's well drillers and say, you know, hey, I want a well dug. You know, how far is it before you hit water in this area? You know, they'll give you a general idea. You know, they might say, oh, it's generally 50 feet or it's generally 10 feet or whatever. They can give you a general idea too. So that's an option. So you want to make sure it's well draining. Um, it should not be in a frost pocket. So a frost pocket is an area where um, cold, frosty air blows and collects at the base of slopes, even small slopes, even slopes that are so small you, you don't even notice they're hardly there. The cool, frosty air will collect at the base of that slope and it will get colder and more frosty in that area, which can be devastating to um, spring blooming plants like strawberries, um, most berries, most fruit trees. So that can be that if you plant in a frost pocket, you've already um, you've already set yourself up for failure right there. So that's an important thing to to look for. And if you're searching for land in wintertime, you know you can visit the site during different times of day and see, you know, is this area frostier in the morning than this other area um, at night? Is it the first part that gets frozen at night on a winter night? 
these are all things you can observe. Um, and also land that is slightly sloped is generally better for fruit growing because it's going to be better drained of both water and frosty cold air. So sloped ground is generally better than a super flat site. Um, the top of a hill or, or top of mountainous areas is usually not ideal because the soil tends to be thinner and tends to be windier up there, all of which can uh, be problematic. So these are some practical considerations. Um, also, you know, looking at soil types, if you have options between areas that are very heavy clay or more loamy or more sandy, you know, more loamy soil, which is soil that's high in organic matter and well draining and, and uh, usually has a fair amount of clay in it. Those soils are going to be better than really, really heavy clay or soil that's almost like pure sand. Um, so the loam soil is going to be the best. Now you may not have options in your region. It may be all clay or maybe all sand. Those can work too. Um, so that's the basic parameters for like choosing, um, you know, if you have the option of choosing, of choosing your site. Um, you can work around all those factors somewhat. Um, sunlight and soil drainage are, are kind of the two that you have the least ability to um, change or, or, or alter. Um, so those, those are basically it, you know, and if you, if you do have a site that gets very little sun, then you may just want to either grow on another site or you may just want to look into, um, a little bit of berry production and see if, you know, what, what might succeed. Like we mentioned black raspberries earlier, or just, um, grow vegetables and, uh, and not look at fruit production. So you, you gotta be realistic too unless you just want to experiment and you have the time and money to do that. Well, so we've gone through almost all of the major practical considerations of evaluating a site, looking at cultivars, sourcing the plants themselves, preparing for the planting. But at the end of the day, most people are going to want to have some sort of business enterprise connected to this if they're doing it on any kind of major scale. If we're getting beyond backyards and homesteads, Oftentimes we're looking at how much this can produce as far as income as well. And you've also written a lot in your book about the business considerations of working with small fruit and have broken these down by cultivars as well. But let's go over some of the patterns and the major considerations for how to make this profitable. Yeah, you know, that's something that that many people are looking into these days. And first you have to look at what fruits are popular and good sellers in your region? It's going to vary. In Europe, you know, black currants, gooseberries, you know, those things are really, really popular in a lot of areas. Like, for instance, uh, Sweden, Germany, Switzerland, you know, places like that. Um, those fruits are really super popular and, and going to be probably top-notch sellers. Now, you come to the U.S., and a lot of people don't even know what those are. And so like here in Kentucky, most people don't really know what a black currant is. Um, and so if you show up at the farmer's market with crates of black currants, you're probably going to hardly sell anything. And so the first thing you should consider is not what you want to grow, but what do people want to buy? And of course, we're talking about, you know, if you're wanting to sell, if you're not wanting to sell, grow whatever you want. But if you're wanting to sell, you need to look at what are people going to buy. And and that means locally because these small fruits don't usually ship very well 
And I doubt most people listening to this podcast are looking to put in 50 acres of raspberries and ship them a thousand miles away. Maybe you are this, this may not be the right, right one for you, but <laughs> if you're, uh, you know, if you're wanting to do this on a small scale and, and sell locally, first you got to see what sells. So go to the local farmer's market. What's really hot. What's moving off the table. Uh, the fastest, what are other growers doing? That's a good place to, to start. Like if, if, uh, strawberries are really popular you may want to grow strawberries now that being said um is the market saturated you know so is your local market if there's 10 other growers bringing in strawberries that may not be the best option because you're gonna uh you know have to go against a lot of competition already so like when we showed up at the farmer's market there were people a few growers selling strawberries there probably could have been more but there was nobody with red raspberries so we set up red raspberries, brought them to the market. I couldn't bring enough. Um, you know, there's one guy that show up every week and buy like 20 or $25 in red raspberries every single time we showed up. Um, it, it, we ended up selling probably about $200 in red raspberries um, like a week um, just off of a hundred foot planting, very small planting, a hundred feet. And only took a few hours to maintain and harvest and, and sort through all the fruit each week. You know, maybe, maybe four, maybe three or four hours or something like that. Brought in a couple hundred bucks a week. Really, really worth it for us at the time. And so um, there's a few standard fruits, you know, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries. Those are some of the most profitable and uh, kind of standard fruits. Blackberries can also be really popular, although for whatever reason, those blackberries always seem to be kind of a notch below the ones I just mentioned in terms of popularity, um, although they've gained in popularity over time. Um, now, if you're talking more exotic things uh, that people may not be used to, like, let's say, figs, you know, of course, in Spain, you know, I'm sure figs are extremely popular. Everybody. Yeah, no, figs do just fine here. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> but here in Kentucky, you know, again, in Kentucky, a lot of people don't even know what a fig is. Now, if you go down to Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, figs are more popular because they grow there. Here in Kentucky, they, they're not traditionally popular because they don't grow well here. Um, now, if you're also wanting to do something unusual, even more unusual, like let's say June berries or some other um, exotic, more exotic type of fruit, uh that yeah your hash caps your service berries your yeah. lincoln berries yeah yeah, yeah yeah the thing is there's a really wide variety out there and it's a shame that more people don't know about them but if nobody's going to buy them at the end of the day it's not going to be a good enterprise yeah now um hascap or honeyberry is really gaining in popularity in canada and uh they're a wonderful berry uh we grow that they're very very nice fruit to grow very very tasty easy to grow um However, like I said, you want to be sensitive to your local culture and the local um, uh, preferences. So you want to be realistic about that. And uh, that takes some observation and some uh, some research. So that's, you know, the first step. And then you have to understand, you know, is the market saturated? So if the market's saturated with strawberries, you may want to look at, is there something very popular that not many growers are growing? Like, let's say red raspberries. So then you can sort of create an estimate of, well, how many of these do I want to grow? Um, how productive are they? How much do you get per foot of row of raspberries? Um, how many feet of row 
can I plant on my farm? How many can I handle to main, uh, to manage and maintain, um, and harvest and keep up on? Um, so there, there's factors like that. And there's not always easy answers where you can just do a Google search and it's going to be reliable because, um, for instance, foot row, uh, yield per foot of row can vary all over the country. It can vary by soil type. It can vary by climate. It can vary by variety. So one, one source might say one pound per foot of row. Another might say three pounds. Another might say half a pound. It's really hard to know. So there's a lot of uncertainties that you're just going to have to kind of roll with. So we started with a hundred, about a hundred feet of, uh, of red raspberries. Maybe it was 150. It wasn't that much. And that worked out great for us. And, um, you know, if we'd continued it on, I would have probably doubled that just to be able to bring more berries to the market. And so you, like I said, you know, you may want to start off small and then if it, Hey, this is going great. This is no problem. I'm selling everything I can, I can pick. I could definitely handle more. Well, cool. Why don't I increase it by 25% or 50% or double it and try that? It's a lot better to go that route than to plant way too much and be totally overwhelmed, uh, especially if you're just starting out, especially if you're just starting out. Like think small, you know, if you're just starting out and you have an idea in your mind, I'd probably cut it in half. You know, like if you think, oh, I, I think I can handle an acre of berries. Okay, I would really suggest try a half an acre and see how that goes. And if that's just, you know, super successful and great, then 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 double it and see how that goes. Um, but yeah, starting off small and uh, practical is always good. And, and like I said, there's always going to be some uncertainties in there because you just don't really know how the fruits are exactly going to perform in your area unless you have quite a bit of experience growing them. Like if you have a backyard scale thing going, well, it's pretty easy to then estimate, okay, if I get five gallons a year off of 20 feet of raspberries, then it's reasonable to think I could get 20 acres or sorry, 20 gallons if I, you know, quadrupled what I have here. So there's a lot of factors like that. And from there, um, you need to also you need to also ascertain how you're going to market these things. So the very best route for most people in most situations, as far as profitability is going to be direct sales. So direct sale means you hand the product to the final customer, the final user. You're not going through a middleman such as a store, a grocery, a restaurant, et cetera, a distributor, so direct sales are, are, are going to be by far the most profitable route. Um, when we were selling red raspberries, we were selling half pint containers for $5, which is a good price. And still today, um, you know, that would still be a good price. And if I was selling those, say, to a restaurant, I'd probably get half that, maybe, depends on the restaurant. And then you've got to deal with the restaurant, which is not as easy as you might think. And I cover some reasons why in the book. And so if, if at all possible, you know, if you have the time and inclination and you can direct sale, uh, sell like through um, a farmer's market, you know, that's a great option. Or maybe you've got a friend that runs a farmer's market table and they can sort of be the middleman for you and you can work that out. You know, not everybody has the time to do a farmer's market table um, or, or doesn't really like to deal with the public. So 
it just depends on your inclination, your personality, your time, your resources, you want to invest in it, how you're going to market them. But direct selling, you're always going to get the highest profit from that. Um, if you're not able to do that for whatever reason, I would probably look at restaurants next and also um, local grocery stores and local health food stores. You know, I go into these local health food stores in the city and there's like no local produce at all. And I'm always just like, why? Why, why is there no one that's growing kale? You know, why is there no one that's growing something really easy that they can sell at this local health food store? Um, it's just sort of, it's, it's just interesting to me that like as many growers as you have and people wanting to grow, why is there no local produce in the store? And so you may be able to strike a deal with them. Like I, I, I said, I was selling also at the local health food store. And once a week I drop off produce, green salad mix, red raspberries. And, you know, it was really working out well for us. And so you also have to then have packaging. Uh, you know, you can't just, you're not just going to hand them a big box of berries, you know, you've got to have everything packaged. And, um, you know, the, the most common form of packaging is these little plastic clamshells. They're called clamshells uh, here in the U S they're called that anyway. They're, they're just like a little, you know, clear plastic box that snaps together. There's various sizes, um, pints, half pints, quarts. You know, maybe they're they're probably measured in different ways that have more sensible uh, measuring uh, options. And we have metric, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, you know, plastic, of course, is not ideal because it's, uh, you know, a polluting product. Now it is um, usually recyclable. Uh, maybe there's some green options that you can, you know, maybe there's biodegradable options or something out there these days. Um, there's also, when I was in, uh, Germany, there was, uh, they were selling currants in these little, um, I don't know if they were like birch or something, but there were these little, um, wooden baskets, you know? And, oh, nice. Yeah, it was really nice. And, uh, so there's, there's, you know, there's options out there that beyond plastic. Um, but you're going to have to have them in something, you know, professional and safe and clean and hygienic that's going to protect the berries and get them home for the person in good shape. Um, and there's various options you can look into and you can buy these things really cheaply if you buy like a big case of like 500 of them or a thousand of them at a time. Um, there's also little pulp containers that are made of like fiber. That, yeah, like the egg cartons. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. And you'll see those at like roadside stands. That that might be a good option. It's a little more eco-friendly too, probably. So there's different options, but you gotta have something to to physically put the fruit in to get it to the end customer. Um, so those are all some some different factors that you have to really consider how you're gonna market it, um, pricing, and you wanna be competitive with your pricing, but you wanna be realistic too. Um, you gotta be able to kind of match the grocery store, maybe go a little higher. And once you build a clientele, like if you build a clientele of, of a couple hundred customers that just love your product and become diehard about it, you may be able to up the price a little bit, especially if your quality improves over time too. So you're not always stuck in a price, but you got to start somewhere and you, you can't be too stuck on a price that no one's going to pay. Because if you're charging a price and, and you only get, you know, 10 customers to buy it, if you dropped it by a dollar and you get 50 customers you're probably going to make more money with that lower price. So, you know, these are all things that you learn along the way as you, as you do direct marketing. And yeah, there's a reason to start small and test and 
try a few things out, right? It's probably going to take a little while to fine tune and dial in your little enterprise and all of the little small changes that you would do with packaging, with marketing, with pricing, you know, it's going to take a little while to do that. And if you're doing that with an initial investment of a massive planting and you get something wrong, man, the, the repercussions are going to be that much more severe. Yeah. And it's, it's good to start with a, a small diversity of things. Like um, you might figure out the two or three best, most viable products in your area. Like, let's say that's grapes, uh, blueberries and red raspberries. Well then plant some of all three and then you can bring all three products and you can have a little bit of diversity uh, to offer your customers. And then it's, and then if one ends up just doing way better than the others, you might, you might shrink the other ones down a little bit or eliminate them or, or try something else new and see how that goes. So it's really good to, to start with at least say two if not three different fruits you're growing just to see like, what do you like to grow? What really thrives? What do your customers really like? What produces the best with the least amount of effort and not just, you know, focus on one particular thing, which may or may not end up panning out how you want it to, to work. Yeah. When we talk about health and ecosystems through diversification, the same happens with economic considerations, right? You don't want to put all your berries in one basket, so to speak. <laughs> and so I'm interested to get your opinion on staggering harvests in your planting in that consideration, because especially in temperate climates, we have a much shorter harvestable window when plants are producing. And if you've got things that all are maturing and ready for harvest at the same time, let's say, you know, raspberries, strawberries, everything kind of happening in early to mid-summer, that can be pretty overwhelming, but there are options depending on the cultivars and, you know, the, the diversity that you plan in where things are maturing at different stages so that you've always got a product going and you're not necessarily overwhelmed by having everything come in season all at the same time. Have you managed to work that out on your own farm or do you simply bring on the help necessary when it's high season? Yeah, that's a really important consideration. And there's some important um, consequences to all that, like you said. So it really depends on what you're going for. You know, are you just doing this as a sideline, you know, profitable hobby sort of thing? Um, then you may just be happy with there being one big harvest of berries at a certain time and you harvest them all over the course of a month and sell them and you're done and that works for you. Now, if you're wanting to do this, you know, more professionally or, or as a serious source of income, obviously you're going to want to have product for as long as possible. And if that's the case, you know, I really recommend growing a diversity of things, including some amount of vegetables. Like let's say you just did um, berries, but then you also did salad greens, or you also did kale, or you also did tomatoes, which tomatoes are actually a berry. And they're covered in the book also. And so you want to look at all your different, um, all your different, uh, or you want to have a range of, uh, har uh, of harvest and, uh, and as long as possible, like we're saying. So you can stretch that out a number of ways, like cultivars, like you said. You can have strawberries that produce early season, mid season, and late season. You can have blueberries that produce early season, mid season, late season. And Strawberries, for instance, are like one of the very earliest fruits. 
blueberries are kind of in the middle of the season and they can stretch into fall or, or, or late summer at least. And raspberries are actually a, a fairly late fruit and they come in usually mid late summer and can go all the way until frost. And so there's two products right there. One is very early. One is in the middle, three products. One's very early. One's in the middle. One is late. And so that would give you a range. And you can also do the different cultivars to stretch it out as well. Um, one of the consequences with that is that um, generally as a rule, fruits that are later producing tend to be more prone to issues. Like for instance, um, a friend of mine is a grower, uh, a, a very serious grower in Indiana. And he says that um, the late strawberries are the most disease prone. And also there's a um, and that's a report of a lot of growers too. And then there's also a invasive fruit fly that's in the United States now for the last say 15 years or maybe 20 years or so called spotted wing drosophila. And it's probably in other areas now too. And it comes in in force during the later part of the season. And so the later fruits like blueberries, um, it's been an issue with us with figs a little bit, raspberries, that fruit fly is going to attack the berries that are the later producing ones. Whereas the early season fruits don't have any issue with spotted wing drosophila at all, SWD. Whereas the later fruits, um, SWD can be a pretty serious problem for some growers. It's, it's gotten better in some years now that they're starting to balance out in some areas with predators now starting to feed on them and everything. So that's good. But there's, there's, you know, these invasive insects get worse as the season goes on also. Stink bugs, you know, marmorated stink bug, um, et cetera. And so that's a consideration also. So sometimes the earlier fruits can be less prone to disease and, and insects just because they finish their cycle before the insects are really their population's high or disease pressure becomes high. So that that's a factor too. Um, but it's always recommended, you know, if you're wanting to maximize your season, then you're going to want to maximize the amount of um, seasonal production that you have. And you want to extend that through um, early, mid, late season varieties and different species and um, really diversifying too. like like a lot of small fruit operations will also grow things like pumpkins uh, that they can then sell in the fall or um, chrysanthemums are really popular in, in the U.S. in this region. And those, you know, a lot of growers are produced that. They'll, a lot of small fruit growers do a lot besides just grow fruit. Um, they'll also process the fruit into jams, jellies, ice cream, um, syrup, sauces. You know, maybe maybe they'll dry some fruit. You know, there's different things that people will do, uh, make make pies with them. So I've seen a lot of small operations that they'll they'll then process fruit, like fruit that doesn't sell or they have an excess harvest. They'll process it and create a value added good. So that's another way of getting more value out of it. Um, another thing to consider is that um, a lot of these plants have valuable other products that you may be able to utilize. For instance, um, some plants you may be able to sell cuttings, you may be able to sell roots. Um, red raspberries, an amazing medicinal herb, the, the leaves. And so that can be a valuable product as well. So there's, there's other ways that you can utilize these fruits beyond just the actual fruit that it produces. Um, 
and uh, you know maybe you can um, also have honeybees on site that are then helping pollinate the crops. And then you can also harvest a little bit of honey and sell that too. So there's other options out there beyond just the fruit. Also agro-tourism, you know, if you have a nice attractive site, this would be for, you know, bigger growers. This, isn't, this is obviously gonna be beyond a, a backyard or half acre scale, but if you scale up a little bit, you know, agroforestry, you picks, you know, all these things can be really popular. You know, um, there's other ways to, to, to create income. Some people like to have weddings on farms, you know, have your wedding at the berry farm. You know, it sounds kind of sweet. Right. And so there's there's other options out there beyond just um, you pick berries, you put them in a in a in a in a little clamshell and you sell them at the market. So you have to kind of think beyond the box, too, when you're doing all this and, and get creative with how you can create value beyond just uh, one single product off of this plant. Absolutely. Unfortunately, there are increasingly innovative business models that you can look at to sort of model or try out different things that you can find all over the world. I mean, I'm seeing subscription-based citrus orchards down here in Spain is one that I hadn't seen before, where you can actually adopt a tree and they'll send you the harvest from that tree over the years. And you kind of sponsor its maintenance and you get a share in its its harvest. Um, there's, there's new things coming up all the time. And I think there's tons of room for innovation as people start to value the experience aspect of coming out to these places and, and being a part of the process. And yeah, I think, I think we're really at a renaissance time right now for people who are interested in moving back into rural areas, starting farm-based enterprises, collaborating with existing farms and figuring out what their niche is and how they can make their living and justify their time in it while producing high quality food and appealing to a whole new type of customer that didn't used to value these things until quite recently, actually. And so there's opportunity everywhere. I really like some of the examples that you've given and, you know, opportunities for bringing in specialty or artisan or adding extra value to things, extending the season, bringing in experiences, you know, so many, so many opportunities right now. Yeah. People have gotten really um, kind of burned out with the industrial model of, you know, you go to Costco or, or Walmart or whatever, and it's in your area and you just buy some generic food from some place and you don't know anything about any detail of it. People like stories. And so if your story is interesting, they're going to be attracted to buy from you. And people were um, attracted to our story of, well, here's a young, um, just married couple that moved from the city and moved to the mountains uh, and started this, this operation. And now they have this really high quality product and they'll deliver it right to your door. And they thought that was cool. And so they wanted to support us and they wanted to buy from us rather than go to the local Walmart and buy groceries. And so you want to create a nice story um, you want to have a nice image with your, your product, a nice name to the farm that sounds good. And, and so all these go into the marketing aspect, but it, it really can't be overlooked because if you have a, you might have a great product, but if you, if you're sitting there at your table and the table looks unattractive and you look grumpy, people are going to pass right by you and go to the person that looks happy, or they're going to just pass it all together and go back to Walmart. So, um, you know, that, that's an important factor. And I talk about that in the book as well. But um, yeah, and you have to be adaptable to change. 
And, um, you know, that's what we did. You know, we're, our operations always changing and always adapting. And I'm, I'm, I'm always phasing things out and trying something new. And if that thing succeeds, it might become a major thing. If I get tired of doing it or it's just too labor intensive, it doesn't bring in enough income. I phase it out. And so our, our, our business and our farm is constantly evolving. Um, you know, I've chainsawed entire groves of trees out after they just didn't work. And I just got tired of watching them fail. Um, and I planted something different, you know, so you've got to just be adaptable and just kind of, um, you know, like, like Curtis Stone says um, in Canada, you know, you got to take keep your idealism, but kind of put it in your back pocket. And, you know, you can be idealistic about about certain things. But if you're too idealistic and too fixed on the things being a certain way, then it's going to end up becoming an obstacle in the long run for you, most likely. And so, you know, you want to be you want to be idealistic and, and do something that you believe in and do something you feel really good about. And you also have to make it practical and you also have to be open to changing it a little bit here and there, too. Like your your idea may be to, to grow all small fruits. But like I said, if you put a few rows of kale or, or um, greens or tomatoes or some other product that's really easy to grow and profitable in your area, you may find that that's, you know, substantially important to the farm. And you can still grow the small fruits, but maybe 20% of the production is vegetables or something along those lines, maybe 50%. Um, and so you just have to be adaptable. And, and that's what organic farming is all about. It's all about adapting to change and making something resilient that works for you works for your local um, community, works for the local ecology in a way, and that it's sustainable for you as a person with your workflow, your personality, your goals in life, and what you want to accomplish. Absolutely. I think that's really good business advice in general, regardless of what sector you're in. Things are changing so fast, not only with what the market is aware of and willing to buy, but also the technology that we have access to, to connect with customers with uh, supporters in lots of different ways. I even know people who got their whole enterprise started up with uh, crowdfunding operations and doing things through community efforts. And, you know, there, there is a way to make a living out of this as long as you're open and flexible and willing to do the hard work as well. Just like you said, putting your idealism in your back pocket, you may have some important goals and ethics that you're unwilling to compromise as you absolutely should but that all needs to be tempered against what the market in your local area is willing to support and you know sometimes it takes a while to cultivate those relationships and that client base that's going to support you in the long run and that requires a certain amount of adaptability but everything you said there is is really good advice and i really hope that people take that to heart as they're considering new enterprises on the land as well well, look, we have covered a lot of ground in this. I'm amazed at how many considerations and and just genuinely good advice on looking at soft fruit as a potential enterprise and how to incorporate it into your farm and into your landscape we've been able to cover. Are there any last words that you would like to give to people who are considering starting this out? So the, my final advice for anyone that's interested in this is... Um, like we said, just don't quit your day job just yet and uh, just start small. If you're totally new to this, start very small 
learn the basics, um, start with a couple different types of fruit and, and get really comfortable with them and get to really, you know, you have to associate with them, observe them, um, you know, try out a few different varieties of each one and really get comfortable with growing them before you want to scale up and just start it off small, um, grow it from there, test out your local markets and just see what, what it is that you, that works for you in your area and that, uh, the local community is really reciprocating with and, uh, just build it up from there. Fantastic. Well, Blake, it was an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Let me know how our listeners can find you, your nursery and your business, as well as where they can go to purchase the book, The Berry Grower. Sure. So our website is peacefulheritage.com and uh, our nursery is Peaceful Heritage Nursery. And we ship fruit, uh, fruit plants and cuttings seeds bare root plants potted plants scion wood all over the united states and we also do some international shipments of seeds and potentially cuttings to other areas um, especially in europe and canada we can do a little bit of shipping there especially um, pawpaw seed is one of our most popular products and we specialize in pop and uh, pawpaws and also other small fruits um, especially ones acclimated to organic production. And so that's peacefulheritage.com. And the book that we've been referring to is The Berry Grower, Small-Scale Organic Fruit Production in the 21st Century. That's published by New Society Publishers. And that book's available online. Um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, maybe your local bookstore might have it. And so you can learn more there. Um, I've also written another book called um, Paul Paul's the complete growing and marketing guide. It's also from New Society Publishers for that those out there that might be interested in learning more about Paul Paul's. Both those books you can find online, and uh, you can contact us via the website if you have any questions or just want to give us a shout. Amazing. Well, look, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and I know we're going to do a follow up because we were talking before this about picking your brain for some of your knowledge on starting a nursery which is one of the things that I'm hoping to get going first when I move on to my own site, hopefully pretty soon and get, get going in the new year. So I'm looking forward to that. Again, thank you so much for making time and we'll catch up again real soon. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks once again to Blake. I'll be posting all of the links that he just mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all of the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. Now, it's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum, by signing up through the link on the website or through our bio on Instagram. If you're already in the group and want to be eligible to win a copy of Blake's new book, The Berry Grower, Small Scale Organic Fruit Production for the 21st Century, all you got to do is send me a direct message through the Discord letting me know that you're interested and you'll be entered to win. Well, so that's our session for this week. Be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so that you never miss an episode. And until next time, Keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.